be in Luke 11. Luke 11 is be our main passage. Like always, it's so wonderful to see everyone. I love being here, and I hope you do as well. It's always great to praise God. Luke 11. As we turn over there, I'm going to read a familiar passage. Acts chapter 2, verse 38. And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. We quote this verse a lot. It's probably one of the most quoted verses in our circles, at least. And, and I love this verse. It's great. We look at this verse, and we talk about baptism, and it's necessary. That's awesome. But I want us to focus tonight on that last little bit that we can sometimes read over without thinking about because we're in such the habit. And where it says, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Baptism we got. But the Holy Spirit, oh man, that can be kind of weird sometimes. But you know what? You read this verse, and in many ways, that's the best part. I mean, why are we getting baptized in the first place? So that we can receive God. So we can receive God. God is our gift, and we can have a relationship with him. This verse is talking about salvation. Acts 2.38 is the beginning of our relationship with God. And that's why we read it this morning, this evening. Because Luke 11, that's what it's all about. It talks about what it means to have a relationship with God. I know we talk about having a relationship with God all the time. But what does it look like to actually have a relationship with God? Some of us might not think, how is it even possible to have a relationship with God? How can we have a relationship with the creator of the universe? That's impossible. But Jesus says, no, you can. And we see that in Luke 11. He tells us very simply, it takes two things if we are going to grow in our relationship with God. It takes prayer and God's word. And those are obvious ones, and we hear those all the time. But there's ways to do those right, and there's ways to do those wrong. And what this lesson is, and what this study in Luke 11 is, is a simple contrast between what life looks like with God and what life looks like without God. And we're going to start there. What life looks like without God. The best way to break this chapter down is to look at the end of the chapter in verses 42 through 50. When Jesus talks to the religious leaders here and gives them the six woes, the six rebukes, the things that they're doing wrong, that they need to change. That they need to change and turn their lives around and stop doing. And I want us to think about this for a second and to put our minds in the first century. You know, if we're looking, if we're in the first century and we're looking to have a relationship with God, where do we go? We go to someone who has a relationship with God. We look for someone who has a true relationship with God and a connection to God. And at that time, you would expect the religious leaders, the Pharisees and the experts of the law to have that. But Jesus says, no. No, these guys, they don't have that. And he gives them the truth there in verse 42 through 52. Read with me. He says, but woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the other. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the best seat in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplace. Woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves and people walk all over you without even knowing it. 
One of the lawyers answered him, Teacher, in saying these things, you insult us also. And Jesus said, Woe to you, lawyers, also. For you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. Drop down, look at verse 52. He gives that last one. Woe to you, lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You do not enter yourselves, and you hinder those who were entering. Those are six major problems, and we can see them on the screen if we break them down. You look at verse 42. He looks at the Pharisees, and he says, look, you have no love for God, no love for justice or for God. You tithe, but you don't care about God. What you care about, in verse 43, is status and prestige. You want the best seat in the house. But at the same time, in verse 44, they're dirty and they're corrupt. They're like graves are unmarked. To walk over a grave at that time would be, you'd be unclean. And Jesus is like, no, you're like unmarked graves. People come to you and they become unclean and you don't even know it. They don't know it. You're dirty, you're unclean, you're corrupt. In verse 46, he then turns to, what does he say to the lawyers? He says, look, you're burdensome and you're abusive. You put too much weight, too much burden on people. You demand too much from them. And he goes on in verse 47 that makes sense because they're hypocrites. They build great things for the prophets that their fathers killed. And now they look at this prophet, Jesus, and they want to kill him. And then they hog the scriptures for themselves. That is, we read the key of knowledge, God's wisdom for themselves. They don't even bother to use it for themselves. And this makes you wonder when you read this and you look at the Pharisees and the experts of the law, it makes you wonder, what are they thinking? What are they searching for? What are they seeking? What door are they knocking on? And the answer is they're seeking themselves. That's the real answer. And we are foolish to think that this could never happen to us. That we think, I don't care about status. Do we? Look at our lives. Do we care about status and prestige? Do we say one thing and then do another? Do we have God's word and we just keep it for ourselves and never share it with the world as he tells us to do? All of these things are the opposite of what it means to have a relationship with God. But when we look at the character of Jesus, what we find is the opposite of the Pharisees. We find that Jesus, he loves God. That is his motivation. He doesn't care about status or prestige. He's humble. He's honest. His burden is light and godly. He's true to God and he's true to others. And his desire, Jesus' desire, is for everyone to hear God's truth. Everyone to follow God's truth. If, If we're not like Jesus, instead we're living like the Pharisees, we end up desiring the wrong things. And throughout this chapter, that's what we see. We see Jesus do amazing things, and we see him say amazing things. But what these people are doing is they're seeking and they're asking, but they're asking for the wrong things. The theme is they're asking and they're seeking for a sign. They demand a sign. Look at that. Luke 11, look at verses 14 through 16. Jesus is doing something great. He's casting out a demon, and look at what the people say. Now, he was casting out a demon that was mute, And when the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke, and the people, they marveled. But some of them said, he casts out demons by Beelzebel, the prince of demons. 
while others to test him kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. Jesus is there. God is there among them doing great things. And what are they seeking? What are they searching for? They're searching for a sign. And you might be wondering, well, what's wrong with that? What's wrong with that? Why doesn't God just give them that sign and prove to everyone that he is God and clear everything up? And we can sometimes think about that today in our own relationship with God. God, why do you make me read between the lines? Look, I'm at a crossroads right now. I'm not sure which decision to make. There's an uncle in my way, and I don't know how to overcome it. And I could be asking God, look, if you could just give me a sign and tell me what decision to make, that would be great. Because I don't know. And when we ask that, we we truly don't know what we're asking or what we're thinking. They're asking for a sign rather than a relationship with God. And a relationship with God should not be built on a sign, a sign that tests God. And that's true for any relationship. It really is. We don't build a relationship on testing. That's, that's not good. We know that's not good. Take any friend or any spouse. If all I do is I test them and I constantly test them, I'm telling them I don't love you and I don't trust you. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't want a relationship like that. Our relationship with God should be dependent on his love for us. And Jesus says, look, if what I'm doing is not good for you, it's not good enough for you, the only sign that you're going to get is the sign of Jonah and the sign of Solomon. Read with me verses 29 to 32. He says, when the crowds were increasing, he began to say, this generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. The Queen of the South will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, Something greater than Jonah is here. To throw Jonah in the mix here is really cool, and it works perfectly with what Jesus is trying to do. To give you a little bit of a reminder, Jonah, he goes to Nineveh, if you remember, after being in the belly of a fish for three days, trying to run away from God. But he gets to Nineveh, and he preaches to them repentance, that is, a relationship with God, and they believe Think about that for a second. How crazy is that story? What Jonah brought to the people of Nineveh, if you think about it, in practice is ridiculous. It makes absolutely no sense. The people of Nineveh at that time had no prior knowledge of God the way that the Hebrew people did. And yet, it doesn't matter. They listen to Jonah's story. They hear of him being in the belly of of this fish. And they repent and they change. It's unbelievable. And yet despite all of that, despite of it being unbelievable, it remains enough of a sign for them to repent. You see, repentance is a key to a relationship with God. We see that in Acts 2.38. 
But continuing this analogy, look at verse 31. Look at this queen of the south. Notice that she searches and she asks, she desires Solomon's wisdom. She knocks at the door and it's open to her because of her persistence. Well, now there's something greater than Jonah and now there's something greater than Solomon. And these people here who are supposed to be God's chosen people, supposed to have a relationship with God, to know God, can't see God standing in front of them. And sometimes that's, that's us. I hope that it's not. I hope that you don't live your life not being able to recognize God. Because this all goes to show that we as humans, we seek and we search, we ask, we desire, But without God, we find the wrong things, we open the wrong doors, and Satan kills us. Jesus says in Luke 11, verse 23, that whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. And this is where we kind of shift gears here. Look at, okay, now what does a relationship with God look like? What does a life with God look like? Jesus says, look, if you want a relationship with God, you want to ask and seek for good things, you got to pray. You want to gather instead of scatter, you have to pray. That's how this chapter begins. Look again at Luke 11. Look at verses 1 through 4. He gives an example. In verse 1, he says, now Jesus was praying in a certain place. And when he finished, one of the disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins. For we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us and lead us not into temptation. It's a simple prayer, but it's so profound. Because it shows us what a relationship with God looks like in practice. You can break it down. Look at the first thing there. Hallowed be your name. I love holy God. I look forward and toward the kingdom. I work for the kingdom. I work for God. I give thanks for all the blessings that he's given me. I love because he loves me. I forgive others because he's forgiven me. And all I want to do is to follow his word and to live after his word. Why? So that I don't, at the end there, I don't fall into temptation. It's the opposite of what we see from the Pharisees and the religious experts and their woes. You see, the religious leaders at this time, with their heart, could not sincerely pray this prayer. And the question for you is, are you able to do that? Does this apply to your life? Jesus begins with prayer here to show, look, this is how you connect with God. This is one of the main avenues of connecting with God. And yet, how strong is it in your life? Jesus goes on to give a parable then. So he gives an example, and now he gives an illustration. Look at verses 5 through 13. This is how you have consistent prayer in your life. He says in verse 5, Then he said to them, suppose one of you has a friend and you go to him at midnight and you say to him, friend, lend me three loaves of bread because a friend of mine has stopped here while on a journey and I have nothing to set before him. 
And then he will reply from inside, do not bother me. The door is already shut and my children and I are in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, even though the man inside will not get up and give him anything, because he is a friend, yet because of the man's sheer persistence, he will get up and give him whatever he needs. So I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks, the door will be opened. What father among you, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead of a fish? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, although you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? What's comforting is verse 8 and how God is compared. But it requires looking at verse 7 there. Read that again with me. It says, everyone, even though it says, even though this man inside will not get up and give him anything, even though God may seem distant and non-existent, he may seem silent. In verse 8, what do we read? Because he is a friend, because of this man's sheer persistence, he'll get up and give him anything that he needs. God can be a friend. I'm not saying that they're on the same level, that we are on the same level as God. No. But it's another way that the Bible describes a relationship with him. Verse 13, God is also described as a father. Another way that God is described and our relationship with him. I love this parable because of that comparison. Is that this man, we are the man, this friend who's knocking on this door, who's seeking, look, I just need three loaves. And God says, I will help. I will provide. Just as long as you bug me, right? No, that's what we read in verse 8. We read, no, as long as you are persistent. But that's how we can read it sometimes. I'm just bugging God. No, it's about I'm comfortable enough to ask God over and over and over again because I've built up a relationship with him. I'm connected with him. That's what a friendship looks like. That's what a father and son relationship looks like. This man's knocking at the door. He's seeking a friend. He's asking for help. And because of his persistence, the door is open. He asks and he finds. He doesn't just find three loaves of bread. He finds something so much more important. He finds support. This man is he's wanting to do something good. And what he finds is a friend. You see, the strength of our faith is the strength of our friendship with God. And those three things that Jesus says, look at verses 9 and 10 again. Asking, seeking, knocking. That's what this man is doing. It's the theme of the whole chapter. That's what everyone is doing. The religious leaders are asking and seeking. They're seeking a sign. They're even standing at the door. But the problem is they have the key, the key of knowledge, and they're putting it in their pockets. Verse 13, though, is really the main point. When it comes to seeking, when it comes to asking and knocking, what are we doing it for? And what we find is that God will not only provide, but more importantly, he will give us himself. 
He'll give himself to us, just as we read in Acts 2, 38. And we really shouldn't want anything more than that. Every father, Jesus says, even if they're evil, will give good gifts to their children because they love their children. God is good and great, and our Heavenly Father, even more so, should give us great gifts, and he gives us the best gift we could ever ask for, and it's himself. And we read in 1 Corinthians 3.16, Do you not know that you are God's temple, dwelling place, holy place, and that God's Spirit dwells in you? And that leads to the second thing that we should do when we have a relationship with God is we should keep God's word, his commandments. Because if we have a relationship with Jesus, that's what we're going to do. That's our response. And that's what we see. Jesus tells us to do that in a very strange way. Look at Luke 11, verses 24 through 26. He tells us, look, this is what happens when an unclean spirit leaves a person. He says, when an clean, unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest and finding none, it says, I'll return. I'll return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. And then it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. It can be strange to read that, but the principle still applies. Notice the evil spirit there. He leaves. That's great. Okay, good. And now that formerly demon-possessed man there, he has his life. He's cleaned up. His life is cleaned up. His house, his soul, it's all good. It says what? It says it's swept and it's put in order. Great. That's what you would expect, right? That's it. You know, we, we can do everything right. We can make the right decision. We can do everything good. But if that space remains empty, that's a problem. And that's what we see. This space is empty. It has no direction. It has no guidance. It has no captain. And that is why when we turn our life around and we repent, God gives himself to us to fill this empty space, this void, we fill it with God and his word. That's literally what Jesus says in the next few verses when he's interrupted by this woman. In verses 27 through 28, and he said these things, and a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast at which you nursed. And Jesus said, no, no, rather, blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. We fill that space with God and his word and we obey it. That's the second aspect of having a relationship with God. That's not what the religious leaders were doing, even though they said they were doing that. They were seeking a sign. They took that key of knowledge and they put it in their pocket. But we're told we need to knock on that door every day and be in God's word and desire God's word and learn from it and apply it to our life. We should keep it and obey it. That's how we connect with God. And that's what God says. He says it best in 1 John 3, 24, that whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this we know, we know he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. If we do this, then our life will look dramatically different. The light within us will shine, Jesus says. And Luke 11, look at verses 33 through 36. 
No one, after lighting a lamp, puts it in a cellar or under a basket, but on a stand, so that those who enter may see the light. Your eye is the lamp of your body. And when your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light. But when it is bad, your whole body is full of darkness. Therefore, be careful lest the light in you be darkness. If then your whole body is full of light, having no part dark, it will be wholly bright and like a lamp with its rays gives you light. This is an example of what we search for, having the potential to either help us reflect the light of God or reflect the evil in this world, the evil generation God continues to say. Are we in the light or the darkness? That's what this whole chapter is about and this lesson is about that contrast, light, darkness. Am I desiring to keep God's word? Am I asking for wisdom? Am I practicing repentance? Am I diligent in prayer? These are examples that we see in this chapter of someone who has a real relationship with God so that our lives can be, as it says in verse 36, it can be wholly bright. That's the opposite of what we see from the religious leaders. This evil generation who claimed to know God and claimed to have a relationship with God, but didn't know God. Couldn't even see God. My encouragement to you is a very simple one, but it's what it said in the chapter. To go and strengthen your relationship with God, just as Jesus says. With prayer, persistent prayer, and by keeping God's word. By asking, seeking, and knocking for a deeper relationship with God. If you don't have a relationship with God, then you've got to read Acts 2.38 again. It's a good one. And you read till 40, and it sounds just like Jesus. And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many more words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked right, or evil generation. Sounds like Jesus. Seek and you'll find. Ask and it'll be answered. Knock and it'll be opened to you. That one decision to follow Jesus will change your entire life. It affects your legacy, as we read there in verse 39, and it's for your children. But what's really comforting about verse 39 is how much God wants us and wants a relationship with us, how much he wants you. What does he say there? He calls us to himself. Don't ignore that call. Answer that call today and to be baptized, if that's what you want this evening. Then come forward now while we stand and we sing.